This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software-defined systems are changing the business of AVIT. Today on Software Defined Survival. Um, the other ones that were huge were being able to understand where folks are taking their calls from and from like, not only like geographically, but like what kind of devices they're on, right? There wasn't much listening going on in my experience. It was a lot of how much could be sold and and um, not so much about the user experience. We understood that, that we were gonna have to move at their pace. Um, one day it might be this device that they're in love with and the next day it might be this other one. My advice would be to get the, the nerds, right? Uh, the techs, the whoever, the engineers, uh, closer to the front end of, a, of an engagement than the back end. Greetings. My name is Patrick Murray. Welcome to Software Defined Survival. And today's guest has held AV and telecommunications positions at some well-known companies like Juniper Networks, Zynga, Tesla, and Uber. He was responsible for expanding the use of software codecs into quite a large operation environment at Uber, and he is currently co-founder and director of business operations at LumaBuild, a custom AV design and integration company located in Silicon Valley that specializes in integrating software codecs. Carlos Martinez, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you for having me. Is there anything about that introduction that you'd like to correct or expand on? <laughs> I think it's 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 uh, a lot fancier than uh, I I probably uh, it warrants uh, my experience, but but thank you for for that introduction. And yes, I have worked at all those spots and held a couple different positions. Well, you wrote the LinkedIn profile. I'm just reading it back. So. <laughs> I think I might have paid someone to do that, but don't tell anybody. Uh, very nice. Very nice. So <laughs> tell me, how did you get started in AV? Um, people don't really grow up and say, I want to be in AV when I grow up. So tell us, what, what's your journey been like? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think like a lot of folks in uh, the AV industry, uh, I wanted to be a rock star and uh, that didn't pan out. So when I, uh, when I when I left, I guess, the music industry and stopped playing, um, I wanted to do something related to music and I ended up going to a small college here in the Bay area called expression college. Um, and they essentially have three different, uh, they had three different, uh, tracks. One was like uh, graphic design. The other one was like digital media. And then the third one, which I actually enrolled in was audio engineering. So kids went there that wanted to essentially be audio engineers, producers, um, or just work in the field, right? Uh, post-production, et cetera. Um, my goal was to either do live sound uh, or work in the studio. Uh, I quickly realized after graduating that there was a lot of hustle involved with getting a job in that industry. And I'm no, I'm no, I'm not scared of the hustle. I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, it wasn't like I didn't want to work hard, but it was a different kind of hustle, right? It's the kind of thing where in that industry, um, the positions are, are very few and, and the line for those positions is very long. So 
you know, I know it might sound cliche, but running coffee and doing all these things was part of at some point getting a role, right? And the folks that did have these roles weren't just going to let them go. Um, living in one of the most expensive places, I guess, in the world, I didn't have the patience to wait. So um, I quickly decided to look for other avenues. And that's when I ended up at corporate. Uh, I think I answered a Craigslist ad. And one of my first gigs was at Juniper Networks, where I didn't know what I was going to do, to be honest. I was completely new to corporate. Um, it's, it was something that I was that I thought I know I would never do work work at corporate. But while I was there, I ended up joining a team which was like a digital media team. We would do things like uh, record internal events, archive them. Um, at the time, we were even using like like actual uh, like the mini. I forgot what they were called, but they were like the mini video cassettes. Um, we would like pop them into the camera, shoot the event, edit it. I forgot what software and then archive them. So that was like my first gig uh, and not something that I thought I would do, but, but that uh, kicked off what, uh, what I ended up doing um, in the corporate world. Interesting. Uh, what instrument did you play? Or do you uh, play? Drums. I drums. played drums. Yeah. Uh, it was my life for the longest time. And uh, hopefully I can get back into it soon. We're actually doing a remodel in our office. And part of the remodel is going to include a music room. So I'm really stoked about that. Nice. Stress, stress management office. Absolutely. I need it. <laughs> yeah. So I completely sympathize and uh, relate to your path up until you started to working to Jun- with Juniper. I attended IAR in, in Greenwich Village, which was also like a music recording and production trade school. And I had a similar experience with the New York City recording industry where, nope, wasn't going to be... Um, trying to uh, calibrate a tape machine and get the peach snapple that the producer absolutely needed at the same time. So kind of yeah, funny exactly. to hear that, that you had a similar experience. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would have liked to stick it out, but it just, it just, it wasn't for me. So it's okay. I'm in a good spot. And on the flip side, uh, you name it corporate, but you know anything that kind of has the video, audio is for fun, video is for money, right? So you actually got to work with interesting equipment, interesting technology, and maybe tell us a little bit about that, um, some of those early days when, when you were doing the recording and archiving. Or maybe, maybe tell us about what your most successful project was and, and what made it special for you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, back at Juniper, it was actually very primitive, right? It was literally a camera on sticks and shooting folks that were just talking at the front of the room. Uh, so nothing too fancy there. It really wasn't until uh, probably BlackRock, um, which is a very well-known financial institution here in the States. Um, actually, at the time, it was uh, Barclays Global Investors which was then bought out by BlackRock. But it wasn't until then that I really cut my teeth in in terms of video, right? Um, And not so much the production side of it, but the video conferencing side, right? The the permanent installs and and the the corporate world of being able to communicate at any time uh, from any place uh, across the company. And uh, so that was my my first exposure to things like, VCS and MCU environments and really understanding that infrastructure, um, not only understanding how to configure it, but 
um, how to troubleshoot it, uh, how to how to expand on it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was really lucky to be, uh, I had, I have a mentor who's still actually a good friend of mine, Richard Leong. Um, he's actually a, a director over at uh, VMware. Uh, great, great guy um, doing a lot of cool stuff over there. But he, he, he essentially said, look, here, here are the keys to the castle. Uh, try not to mess it up too much. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but this is where you're going to kind of learn. And at the time it was, it was Tamburg. It wasn't even Cisco. Yeah. Um, you know, we had VCSs and MCUs big, we had a big presence in data centers, essentially. Um, it's not like today where you just stand up a few Mac minis or whatever it is you're using and you don't really worry about anything behind the scenes. Right. Uh, but in terms of my first real big project, so that's where I learned the video conferencing world. Um, I did some implementations there, but my first real uh, implementation where I, I was on my own and managing it was at Zynga. Um, and the mandate there was I showed up once again, it was, I think it was a Craigslist ad that I replied to. And I showed up there at Zynga after BlackRock and they, they basically said, look, our AV is broken, fix it. And uh, I was like, okay, uh, you know, how much time do I have? Or yeah, you have about, you know, a month to come out with a plan for, for a company. And by the way, we're growing exponentially. And by the way, you know, everyone's frustrated. It's like, Oh, okay. How many rooms? Uh, Yeah, exactly. How many rooms was it? Oh, um, it was, I think at the time we were probably at around 150 rooms, but soon to, to double. um, A a month is about right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, 150 rooms at the time. And, and I think it was Polycom that was giving them headaches. And okay. so um, I was very familiar with the Cisco environment. And so uh, that was the first real project where, where I dug my teeth into, into kind of all aspects, right? Everything from the, the, the logistics of planning the rollout, uh, procurement, um, and just all the different dependencies that went into transforming, doing a rip and replace. Uh, and, and, and to a certain extent, when you do these things, it's also, it's also a cultural shift, right? For all the users. Um, mm-hmm. So pl- planning the education around it and whatnot. Um, and uh, the good thing was it went well. Um, we were able to do a proper rip and replace, everything from the infrastructure to the endpoints. Um, we had some really good partners at the time that allowed, that helped us with the physical integration of the spaces. Um, but yeah, we migrated uh, around 150 rooms uh, from Polycom to Cisco. Interesting. I like uh, the way you talked about that it was a cultural shift. Um, I think that's important to realize that the end users, if if a company really relies on video conference and, and collaboration, which more and more companies do every day uh, today, that it really does affect their day-to-day, how productive they are, how things get done, and replacing or just just changing the color of the touch panel, for example, could you know kind of throw somebody for a loop. And uh, could you talk a little bit more about the cultural impact of of, uh, of AV systems? Absolutely. Um, I mean, specifically talking about Zynga, I mean, and, and this has happened a couple times throughout my career, but going back to Zynga, you're, you're right, right? Even the smallest things, uh, folks are used to walking into spaces and uh, pressing a series of buttons or, you know, doing these steps repeatedly 
um, to get their call started, et cetera. And when something changes and something as small as a different touch panel or different camera or whatever the case, or dual display over single, right? Sure. Um, they, they, they kind of freak out a little bit and that's okay. It's not their job to know video conferencing or AV or know why changes uh, happened. So um, the impact came from, from being able to, well, number one, going from an environment that was broken and where folks were like, you know what, I don't want to use video conferencing to meeting minutes just exploding um, because all of a sudden things are working, right? Mm-hmm. Calls are connecting and they're staying up or maybe the way that they're interfacing with the system is much easier. Um, the, the steps that it takes to join a call has been reduced from five to one to two or whatever the case may be. So all of those things played into uh, providing a proper experience across the globe um, and, and teams being more efficient. And now instead of folks saying, you know, I, there's no way I'm not touching it to wanting to be in rooms and rooms now being booked all the time and needing to build more rooms. Um, so the impact is just, it, it's, it's kind of all around, right? It's happier folks, more efficient, um, and essentially giving us the, giving us the uh, ability to, to create, to build more rooms and, and, and do it in a way that, that uh, is, is impacting. I, I don't know that, it, and this is one thing that I, I've always, I always wanted to do, um, just was really hard because there was so many elements. I would have liked to actually measure efficiency in some way, shape or form mm. between an existing environment and then when it was improved, right? I never got to do that, but um, we do know that at least usage exploded for sure. Uh, what I took away from that is the interesting perspective of how success can um, kind of have uh, some some side effects that aren't wanted, right? So you have like the more the meeting minutes, so usage exploded. You had more minutes to take care of, and if you're not prepared for that, that that could be a problem. Um, and the calls staying up, so people weren't hanging up the calls because it worked too easily. So those uh, interesting side effects of of implementing a successful system are, are kind of interesting. They are for sure. Um, while at Zynga, the team wasn't too large, but we definitely had to augment uh, the team and, and make sure that we had enough folks to, to support these offices now, right? And also stand them up, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And uh, the next thing you talked about was actually measuring efficiency. And I'd like to talk more about what kind of metrics you would have uh, liked to have measured, because I think that's before you could actually um, analyze your data, you kind of have to have a goal in mind. What is it that you want to learn from the data? And if you don't know that at the start, then you won't be collecting the right things. So do you have any thoughts on what metrics you would actually measure? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, one, there's a, there's a couple things that come to mind. Uh, one of them, I, I was actually able to, I was actually able to uh, measure later in my career while I was at Uber. But uh, one thing that uh, I would have liked to do earlier was uh, CSAT, right? And understand how happy are folks really with the systems. Um, what does that term mean? Uh, it's customer uh, satisfaction. Satisfaction, okay. Yeah. Um, so basically, uh, having some sort of tool, whether it be real time or, or after the fact, after the fact gets a little bit harder just because 
if they if it's real time, it's fresh in their mind, um, and they can they can actually execute on a survey. Right um, later, they might they might flag the email that they got, but it's really hard for them to actually go back and and spend that time. And not because they don't want to, just everyone's really busy. Um, but CSAT would have been good. The one thing that um, uh, we were able to measure was the length of calls. Um, we noticed that after the implementation, you know, calls went from, and, and this could have been both because they were actually staying, the calls were actually staying up uh, or because they were just happier to actually be speaking to their teammates across the globe, across the country uh, for longer periods of time and being able to collaborate longer. But mm-hmm. we did notice that the calls were going from, you know, 25 minutes, 30 minutes to an hour, hour and a half, right? Wow. Um, those sort of things were pretty easy to measure. Um, and we were able to present them and, uh, but CSAT would have been one good that we would have liked to measure back in the day. Yeah. I I think it's often overlooked. So my guess is most of the listeners to the podcast are work for an integrator of some sort, but there are probably a lot of technology managers who work directly for end users. And I think when you're in a position like that, having that kind of data, um, could be really useful just for negotiating your budget, what kind of systems get installed, how things are managed, just being able to come to the table with uh, um, whoever it is you report to with some real data. I imagine that's got to be really useful. It is. I mean, especially when you're asking many times on the front end for a really big check, right? So as a service owner, I had to uh, multiple times say, hey, you know, I need I need a million dollars. I need $2 million right? To do, to do what you're asking me to do, sure. right? Obviously, there needs to be some data behind that. Um, even though I have the experience, there, there needs to be some sort of data that, that, uh, that provides some sort of confidence for whoever's signing those checks to say, okay, Carlos, yeah, here it is, right? Trust me usually isn't good enough. And I get it. Uh, if someone asked me for that much money and said, trust me, I would also ask for some, some info. Um, so it comes in handy, uh, in those situations. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, it's, it's not just the financial part, but it's also being able to, to show that things are working, that things are improved. Um, because as users, I mean, as folks that, as service owners or integrators, we know all that goes into building these systems, right? And we know what works well and what doesn't. As users or as, as management or C staff that, that, you know, they just want things to work, they don't know all that goes into it, right? So having that data and being able to explain either trends in the industry, why we're doing what we're doing, why we're implementing the technology we're implementing is all key into, into kind of garnering that trust in an IT team, an AV team, and, 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 and being able to uh, continually get the support from, from management. And how has the move to software-based codecs made that uh, somewhat easier, I imagine? collecting data, presenting reports, monitoring trends? Yeah, um, it's made it, so, I mean, specifically talking about Zoom, um, it's made it easier from a couple a couple different perspectives. Um, I would say that Zoom now does a, a really good job of reporting on a few different metrics. 
when we first implemented it um, at Uber, I guess going on five years now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Four to five years now. Um, some of those metrics were lacking, but some of those things were and and going back to CSAT, one of the things that we asked uh, Zoom to do was to implement a survey at the end of each, of, of each call, for example. So you would have your call, you would hang it up, and then uh, you could turn this feature off if you want to, but basically a survey would pop up that was thumbs up, thumbs down. And then if you gave it thumbs up, great, it disappeared. If you gave it thumbs down, a list of what we thought were the things that could potentially go wrong in the call would pop up and you're able to select them and you're able to enter your email uh, so that we could potentially get back to you or just get more info if needed. You didn't have to enter your email, but we could collect data like that. Um, and so those sort of metrics were key. Um, the other ones that were huge were being able to understand where folks are taking their calls from and from like, not only like geographically, but like what kind of devices they're on, right? One of the things that uh, has been really hard throughout my career, through, throughout just video conferencing in general, I would imagine, is, is quality issues, right? So uh, many times with, uh, let's just say old, not old, but more traditional systems like Polycom and Cisco, where they're hardware-based, um, you could get geolocation because you were installing these in offices. So you knew where they were they were installed and you could potentially look at the network at that location um, and, and try to figure out why there was an issue. Uh, once you go into uh, video anywhere, basically from your mobile, from your, from your mobile phone, from your iPad, from wherever, um, then it gets a little trickier. So understanding uh, geolocation, and device allowed us to provide a better answer when there were quality issues. It's like, oh, okay, look, we're, we noticed that this person was on 3G um, in a remote city somewhere. That could put, that at least point you in the right direction. So that was another huge one. Um, and then later on, they were also able to, to provide uh, jitter and packet loss for both audio and video. Um, so CSAT metrics on the call itself and geolocation and where folks were actually taking their, their calls from. I mean, they actually have uh, a, a, a graph that shows the, the breakdown of the different devices. Was it a mini Mac mini? Was it an Android device? Was it an iOS device, et cetera, et cetera. So that was really huge as well. That sounds uh, really interesting. So then you could take a look at that and actually suggest to your users what what they could, you could educate them what their best um, experience will be, what what devices provide the best experience. Just so I understand it a little better, were you able to take that survey and then compare it to where the device and, and geolocation were? So if you get the thumbs down, you could kind of sort out everything that came from a mobile network? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we weren't always able to get granular and, 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 you know, be, be the best detectives and say, uh-huh, you know, like it was this, mm. but at least it pointed us in the right direction. Right. Um, with a lot of this stuff, uh, it, we were trying to be as, uh, least intrusive as possible. Right. Of so course. what we don't want to do is, uh, is, uh, have users become AV, 
technicians or AV engineers. So we we try to ask the 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 least amount of questions possible to be able to get them the right answer. Um, so sometimes we would go back and say, hey, you know, what whatever question we we might, we might have that would lead us on the right path. Um, and if they gave us an answer, uh, then, then great. We were able to potentially say, okay, this was the issue. A lot of times, like I said, folks are busy. Um, and you know, that video conferencing call is over. So they're, they're moving on to the next one or, or the next thing they need to do. Um, so yeah, sometimes we were able to pinpoint, but others we weren't. Um, and, uh, I think as long as we were at least following up and at least showing that, look, we understand uh, that you had an issue and and we're following up on it and and these are the tools we have. Um, they they were generally very happy about about our support. Yeah, that's that's quite different from those hardware codec days where um, getting that kind of feedback was it wasn't impossible, but it just wasn't mainstream. Your your AMX or Crestron programmer wouldn't. Uh, it, I never saw it in a requirement back in those days, but I think it's a really great way to know if your systems are being used properly and, uh, and functioning well. Yeah. Can you, uh, were there any challenges with implementing that, that zoom room solution at Uber? Maybe tell uh, us a bit about that project in general. Yeah. Uh, yes, there were many challenges. Um, but I think, I think it was because to be honest and not that we're trailblazers or pioneers or anything, but I think we, we were definitely trying to do it, uh, implement, implement uh, Zoom at a large scale at a time where it hadn't been done yet. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think we were the largest implementation at that time. And even uh, just a few years back when they did Zoomtopia, I think I heard that uh, the team had received an award for most Zoom rooms. Uh, wow. I was not there anymore, uh, but a lot of those guys are still my friends and uh uh, I, I heard that they received that award, which is great. I think it's awesome. And I was very proud of them because they were a huge uh, reason for that implementation. But can you give us an idea of that scale? I think before, when I left, we were at 1500 rooms. So we went from a small pilot of, I think 30 rooms to about 1500 rooms in a little bit under two years, uh, globally. Um, and I, I don't know what it's at right now, but I would imagine it's, it's, you know, 2000 plus, um, and that's all shapes and sizes, right? That's everything from a large space that's divisible with projectors and screens to a small huddle space that might fit, you know, two or three folks. Um, but that was the scale at the time. Interesting. And, uh, yeah. what were the challenges? Yeah, so the, the challenges were that Zoom was in its infancy, right? And so while they had a really good foundation, um, as we started to deploy, uh, or as we started to POC, I should say, um, we, we, we started to poke holes, right, in, in, into some of the potential feature requests or stability um, of the client itself running on the Mac Mini, um, uh, some other things that we ran up against were uh, the integration of the peripherals, right? So um, it wasn't just about saying, okay, let's take Zoom and install it on a bunch of Mac minis and just have it run, right? The rest of the AV world had to play nice as well, whether it be a camera, whether it be a speaker mic, whether it be the iPad. At the time, the only controller available was the iPad. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to live, so it, it was a hybrid. We had to live in kind of both a, a commercial world, but at the same time, uh, a, a residential world as well, right? A more uh, consumer-based because iPads to this day aren't intended to be in, in an enterprise environment for the most part, right? Uh, it's something that uh, is used for surfing the web or playing games or, you know, whatever the case may be. So it was, um, that was a big one, finding the right peripherals for the room, uh, making sure that they're controlling, that Zoom is controlling them correctly. So we had to actually work with, uh, I mean, some of the manufacturers we work with were like Revo Labs, for example. Um, They had a device called the, uh, they still have it, the uh, UC500, which is just a simple speaker mic. You put it on the center of the table. Uh, it's USB, and uh, you you know you go at it. But, but but even having something like the iPad mute that and have the lights be you know reciprocal and, and provide feedback. Something mm-hmm. that simple was huge because users, for example, would mute on the iPad and they would still see green lights on the Revo Lab, and they would be like, "Well, am I really muted?" Right. And sure. now they're unplugging the Revo Lab because they're not sure if they're being heard or not on the other end. So there was things like that. Um, and I just think that, uh, so peripherals, um, feature requests, um, another big one that we faced was the network. So now you're asking an enterprise network team to uh to take in let's just say in a building 300 ipads right all on wi-fi so now you're flooding kind of the wi-fi space and if that wi-fi uh, network isn't set up for that well you're going to have issues right um that was a big one where we we were having trouble having ipads stay up and since the ipad is the controller you would walk into a room and the room is broken there's nothing you can do. There's no other way you can start your call, right? Um, or, or from a physical perspective, the iPad, uh, we try to get a little bit fancy, for example, and the, um, the stands or holders that we use for the iPads were removable, right? So it was like it had a case and then you could put it on the dock um, and it would charge. And what we were thinking at the time was, well, let's give folks the ability to control the call from anywhere in the room, right? They pick it up, they start their call, they manage it, volume, muting, et cetera. Um, And then they put it back. The put it back part didn't work too well, (laughs) as you would imagine, right? So what ended up happening is, you know, we found iPads in the seats. We found iPads, um, you know, on the tables or wherever, on the floor. So... Now we're chasing all these iPads and docking them and making sure that they're being charged for the next person to use. So yeah. we, we worked with, uh, with Zoom on, on that challenge and saying, hey, can we get some sort of notification when the battery on the iPad is down to a certain level, right? Yeah. Um, so they helped us do that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, just, I mean, there's, I could go on and on and on. And this is not a diss on Zoom, it was just very new at the time. And since we had a large sample size and we're deploying so quickly, we were running up against these issues very fast and almost on a daily. Um, We were 
Um, we were working with our, our, our rep um, and to a certain extent, even Eric, uh, CEO over at Zoom, like, hey, Eric, like, we need your help on this one. I know that it's, uh, you know, it's five o'clock on a Monday and, and I'm asking you to have a solution by Wednesday, uh, but we need it, right? And that was kind of the agreement when we signed up with them. It was like, look, we're going to take a really big risk. Um, but uh, if it pays, if, if, you know, if, if it pays off, it's going to be really well, it's going to be really good mutually. Um, and we took the risk and just ran up against uh, one thing or another for about, I would say, six months um, before we actually stabilized the environment. That's uh, pretty interesting. It reminds me of a story I heard about an integrator who, um, or actually a control company that rolled out a new product and they made sure that they were close geographically because they knew there would be issues and they, they viewed that whole process as a way to improve their product. Uh, you know, not, not to use a customer as a guinea pig, they knew their stuff worked, but they also knew there would be things like, like the iPad issue that you mentioned that nobody could really foresee how people will use these things in real life. And like you said, within a few months, all those things got ironed out. They needed to be reactive. They needed to work hard. And in the end, they got a better product out of it. So I'm sure a lot of those challenges that you went through, um, like the mute not going on and off, I know that there's now an API for Zoom. So that's probably where a lot of those things were, were born out of. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and when we, when we signed up with zoom, we knew that we were going to run up against these challenges, right? It wasn't the kind of thing where we signed up and expected things to be perfect. But the reason that uh, I was essentially allowed to, to take the risk was because uh, we, we understand, we understood zoom's vision vision, we understood that um, what they were trying to do uh, was the right thing, right? As opposed to just kind of doing the same old thing. So we were willing to take those risks because we knew if we got it right, the reward would be pretty large. I mean, the deal, to, to be completely transparent, we, uh, I, we basically I had them come on site. They, they whiteboarded kind of their vision, some of the things that were on the roadmap, et cetera, et cetera. And after two or three hours, I basically said, yeah, we're going to go with you guys, right? And I was lucky enough that my manager at the time, Chris Cravens, shout out to him if he listens to this, um, he was just like, yeah, look, we, we're going to take a risk on this um, because they, they're, they're trying to do something outside the box. And, um, and we did it, and it was painful, uh, but... I mean, look at them now, right? They're doing some amazing things and they've displaced some of the some of these hardware codecs that have been in place for many, many, many years. So um, definitely not naive to it. We were up to the challenge and uh, just had a really great team that was also up to the challenge and was able to to support me in, in, in getting this initiative off the ground and, and stable. Yeah, I recently uh, took a webinar or attended a webinar for integrators who are interested in Zoom Room. And I was actually really impressed with all the functionality that they've built into it and the interop interoperability with all of the other software codecs that were out there. I think um, I think that if you don't attend a webinar like that, you think it's just what we're using now to make this call. But I think the Zoom Room has a lot of features that are in interesting for for AV integrators. So you've worked for a lot of end users, and now you're involved with um, 
with a, an integration company. Can you tell me a little about that switch and where your focus is? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the switch involved a couple different uh, changes. Uh, I went from essentially being a service owner at corporate to being the owner, co-founder co with uh, Mike Ponticello, my partner. Um, so that was a big switch in itself, right? That I'm no longer under this huge umbrella where there's a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, safety net, right? Um, and then the other obvious change is the fact that now I'm integrating and I'm providing solutions for um, many, many clients, right? Not just one company where I'm just responsible for maybe five initiatives. Uh, now we're responsible for uh, providing standards for uh, all of our different clients. Um, so those are the two biggest changes. Um, and so I have to, we have to, we have to make sure that we're doing the right thing for each and each each of our clients, right? Because not everyone's the same, and not everyone's in the same phase. Not everyone's using the same technology. Not everyone everyone's culture is the same. So um, we have to be really good listeners, um, and and say, okay, we know one size doesn't fit all. Like, and tell us how you're currently using technology in your conference rooms, tell us how you would like to use it and just like give us your craziest ideas, right? Um, and we can see if we can make some of those things happen or or we can just, uh, we can find potential alternatives. Uh, so those are the biggest things, uh, being able to be flexible um, and just good listeners because it was, I think it's the biggest reason that Mike and I uh, decided to do this uh, to to kind of jump to the other side, um, not to diss the AV integration industry or or anything like that. But uh, after being a service owner for you know twelve years, uh, I, I just felt like it was very repetitive, and it was like it was like let me try and sell you you know the new brightest biggest TV now, right? I I know I told you last year that was the biggest and brightest, but now this year this is the biggest and brightest. And um, there wasn't much listening going on in my experience. It was a lot of how much could be sold and, and um, not so much about the user experience. Um, don't get me wrong. We had some, uh, you know, I had some really good integrators in my career, but I would have liked a little more listening. Um, and I think that the experiences uh, for our users would have been a little more tailored and uh, provided uh, better user experiences, whether it's a video wall or whether it's a huddle room. Um, but uh, yeah, that, those are some of the those are some of the bigger changes going from uh, owning a service at a corporate to now having to kind of own AV for for multiple companies. Thanks for that perspective. I really appreciate that. Um, I think the AV industry or the AV integration industry is is really changing rapidly right now. And the move to software-defined solutions like something like a Zoom room or just a move from hardware-based codecs to software-based codecs and things like displays becoming a commodity, everything, all the hardware is kind of moving towards commoditization. I think there's a lot of changes going on and the business will have to change. And uh, for any company that's been doing things the same way for a long time, it's tough to make that change. So 
do you have any advice or tips for integrators that, you know, maybe those integrators that were trying to sell you that TV and not asking enough questions, obviously listening, uh, you already said, focusing on the user experience. Is there anything else we could do to deal with this change and, uh, and be more successful? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things for us, for example, that we are doing, not that we're the only ones doing it, but we're doing a little bit different is um, we actually don't have a sales team at Lumi Build. Uh, one of the things that we felt was, was lacking was the immediacy between as service owners, the immediacy between a request and when it either, when it got implemented, right. Or, or what we were essentially quote unquote sold on and what was what actually ended up being the end product. And so my advice would be to get the the nerds, right? Uh, the techs, the whoever, the engineers uh, closer to the front end of, a, of an engagement than the back end, right? Um, I ran up against many times where we were we were sold something or the picture was painted on some on some sort of system and then what we actually got was different and there was a lot of frustration uh from the engineering side because they were basically saying well i didn't sell this and i didn't design it and it was like oh man like so the accountability there was a little blurred um so that would be my my advice um that Folks running the projects on the front end, folks on on you know in those meetings, uh, whether it be a project manager, a technical product project manager, is able to at least get some sort of answers uh, without having to go through three layers and then potentially getting an answer to the client. So that's that's I think the biggest thing that uh, that um, I kind of had an issue with as a service owner and and we're trying to fix now is Lumi Build, at least for us and our clients. Excellent. I can certainly echo that as a software developer, the projects that go best are the ones where we're called early and often. So do you have any final thoughts? No, I mean, thank you for having me. I think this is really cool. Um, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you about, you know, what, what I've been up to over the last 12 years and, and our, our most recent endeavor, which is Lumi builds. And um, hopefully it, it helps other folks, uh, you know, reflect on kind of the same path that I've been on and like, yeah, like I remember those days or whatever the case may be, because sure. things are changing really fast. Right. And, uh, and, uh, it's important that we all keep up with the new technologies. But like I said, the biggest one is just being good listeners and, and especially in the Bay area where, uh, things move so fast. Um, we understood that, that we were going to have to move at their pace. Um, one day it might be this device that they're in love with, and the next day it might be this other one. Um, and that's okay, right? Um, as long as it, it falls in line with the, the, the master plan, then we'll go with it. But it's also really good to be objective, I think. Um, be objective with, if you're an integrator, be objective and don't be afraid to say, well, like, I know you saw that thing in the magazine and your, you know, your friend might have it over at, at company X or whatever, but it doesn't fit your roadmap. So um, it's okay, I think, to, to be objective and to, to push back on the client if it, at the end of the day, it's going to provide a better solution for them. And, uh, 
and maybe it might, might not be the biggest uh, margin maker um, or profit maker, uh, but that's okay. Uh, that's okay. It'll, uh, it'll show them that you're thinking about uh, their environment, their culture, their, uh, their end goal, and it'll, it'll produce uh, repeat business and, and, and it, it just overall a great partnership. So um, that would be my, my takeaway. Excellent. Yeah. Um, focusing on the long term is kind of a, an investment in your own company. So if anybody would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, I guess the best way is through uh, the website, just lumibuild.com uh, if it's an inquiry. But you could also just, honestly, we're a small enough company where we're very uh, accessible. And my email, which is carlos at lumibuild.com. Um, but yeah, lumibuild.com is our website. You can you can contact us through there for any, um, any support, questions, uh, requests, et cetera. Great. Carlos, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Patrick. If you or anyone on your staff ever considered themselves just an AV programmer, join the club. That's how I used to feel. I was just an AMX programmer or just a Crestron programmer. Whatever language of your choice is, whatever it may be, there's generally this feeling in AV that we're not capable of using modern programming languages. And it simply isn't true. Sure, there's a learning curve, but once you get through it, all other languages become easier to learn and it just expands the amount of options you have when designing a system. It's not an either or decision. You don't say, I won't be using these manufacturer tools anymore. It's just you have a broader palette to choose from. And here's what Mark Day, founder of Ideabox, had to say about his experience with the online courses at learnavprogramming.com. You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes be the start of really big ideas. Uh, before I took the learnavprogramming.com courses, I was in that proprietary, I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset, right? Uh, when it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or, or things like that, for some reason I thought that was different from what I'm doing. And what taking your courses flipped for me was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses, it was the mindset of, oh, wait a second, I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing. I just have to learn, uh, you know, the other 1%. And that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, and I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset uh, which is more important and, and, and really show them new opportunities, open the door so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I got to tell you, one of the, the biggest changes for me was as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies, I, I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again. Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business, he needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface, and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, 
How can you use modern programming to improve your business? Please go to learnavprogramming.com and wherever you see a sign up button, go ahead and sign up and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, Go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks.